Welcome to the final episode of season one of Tectopia. I thought it would be appropriate to end the year as we began it, talking about COVID-19 and its pernicious impact on our lives and psyche and the healthcare system at large. Joining me now to talk about COVID-19 are Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur, co-hosts of two great podcasts, Fixing Healthcare and Coronavirus, The Truth. Jeremy Kaur also is the CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, and as many of you know, produces both my podcasts, Tectopia and When It Mattered. And Dr. Pearl is the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente Medical Group and a frequent guest on Tectopia. He is currently both practicing and teaching at the Stanford University School of Medicine. His new book is Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, and all proceeds from all his books go to Doctors Without Borders. Dr. Pearl, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. It's great being on the show, Chitra. I look forward to talking with you about 2021. I look forward to 2022 to you far more. And Jeremy, first uh, appearance on uh, Tectopia, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I saw a recent cartoon about Omicron that said, this is not how I wanted to learn the Greek alphabet. But I guess, like it or not, we're all getting familiar with it. Dr. Pearl, how worried should we be about Omicron uh, this winter and beyond? I mean, what's the good news and what's the bad news here? Omicron, as you know, has only been around for about a month. And already it's becoming the dominant strain, which is far more rapid than Delta did. Answering your question about putting it into context, I'll start with the bad news, which is that it is highly, highly transmissible. I probably know three or four people who in the first 18 months had COVID and I easily know 30 who've had it since then, almost all of them have been vaccinated and boosted, and none of them have had a severe infection, which is the good news. So when you're looking at a virus, what you wanna know is how easily does it spread from one person to another? And with Omicron, it's very rapid, and we can expect that a large proportion of the population will have it before the virus disappears in some form of an or another, but at least for those people who are fully protected, they're unlikely to get very sick. In contrast, however, the unvaccinated are at great risk, although it may be slightly less severe. That's what the South African data looks, but the British data looks at the opposite. The change is not gonna be very great. They are at risk, and we're gonna see both cases doubling and tripling, and deaths going up. So for those who are not vaccinated or, or vaccinated but not boosted, they can get much sicker, right? And especially those that have been unvaccinated could wind up in the hospital with, with the severity of uh, the original virus or less severe, would you say? For listeners, think of it as being equivalent. I mean, maybe it'll be 10% less. So instead of you know 10 people dying, nine are gonna die. But for people who are unvaccinated, they are at great risk. And, and this is the part that listeners need to understand, because it's so much more transmissible, the risk is so much greater because you've got to multiply your exposure risk times your death risk. And so if you're three times as likely to come in contact and get a case, and you're 90% as likely to die, 
you still are 2.7 times greater at greater risk. Everyone who is unvaccinated, this is the time to make sure you're vaccinated. Everyone who is vaccinated, this is the time to have a booster. It's the difference between having a relatively normal life and one that's severely compromised and potentially ended. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You and I were talking before uh, we started recording and we talked about two parties, right? College parties. Uh, my son chose not to attend this college party, but his friends did. And there were uh, 50 people at the party and 25 got sick and more are getting sick. Uh, and and you, you have another experience of another party as well. And this with holiday season, it, that's something to really keep in mind. And this was a actually a MBA class, and MBA classes often during the winter break travel together to another country to study the finance there, to study the businesses there. This was a thousand students, and 500 of them tested positive for Omicron. Uh, they know that because they tested all the students frequently. Probably they would not have known that had they not, because most of the cases were mild, because everyone on the trip has was fully vaccinated and boosted. So this is the challenge that we're seeing now that we didn't quite see before. Occasionally there was a breakthrough case, but Omicron is very different. And I think that we can expect that most of us at some point will come down with this, but it will be very much like the flu if we are fully vaccinated and boosted, but it will be much more severe if we're not. One last point. Israel today announced that they're suggesting a fourth booster. And so what fully protected looks like will be changing across 2022. And you both, you and Jeremy, both uh, live in different parts of the country. Jeremy, you live in the Midwest in a deep blue college town in Iowa, surrounded by red. And you, Dr. Pearl, live uh, both on the East and the West Coast. Uh, see, you know, largely sort of a a liberal landscape. What are you seeing across the nation in terms of how people are viewing and thinking and doing vaccines, masking, et cetera? Jeremy? You know, I, I think it's, for me, the most interesting part is, you know, where my office is in downtown. You know, I go around, I see a lot of people wearing masks. I see people following precautions. And the further I get away from, you know, the area where the campus is, the less I see of that. If I drive, you know, 10 minutes in any direction, any store I go into, you, you might see a handful of masks, if any. Um, and it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people are just kind of over it at this point. I mean, I hate to use that terminology, but I even had a friend tell me the other day, you know, we were kind of talking about Omicron, but he told me I did my precautions early on in the beginning. I did everything I had to do. I, I got, you know, vaccinated and, you know, I'm not going to get boosted. I'm just sick of it. I don't care anymore. I've come to accept that I'm going to get it at some point and I just need to live with it. And I'm tired of not going to sporting events, not going to concerts, just not living my life, not seeing family. You know, he was like, if this is something that's just going to keep going on, I'm just going to go back to my normal life and I'm done with it. Um, and then I think the other interesting thing is I also know people, too, who are still, you know, getting groceries delivered, you know, not leaving the house, Zoom schooling their kids. It's such a weird, fascinating combination. But I think the vast majority of people uh, where I'm at are just kind of, I hate to say it, but over it at this point. Yeah, I was at the mall with my teenage uh, younger son and and he we were surrounded by people. We were masked, of course, and we we're vaccinated and boosted. But he looked around and said, 
no one's getting these people back home and, and getting them to stay home. You know, everyone's out and no one's going back in. And Dr. Pearl, what do you think of that, that uh, we're kind of at an at a point of no return with people just being fed up with this whole thing? What I've seen, and it was interesting about, I'd say two to three weeks ago, I went to the local Costco and it was had a lot of people there. It was a Saturday, people started to shop for the holidays and no one was wearing masks, or very few people, maybe 10%. I went back a couple of days ago, just as crowded, but everyone had masks on, even though there was not a mandate yet uh, to do it. And I think that that's what we're seeing. Um, I flew yesterday from the West Coast to the East Coast and the plane was full, everyone was fully masked, but the plane was still full. Uh, the data says that most people are still gonna keep their holiday plans. So I think it's coming down I'll say, if you want to call it in the more blue areas, but the ones that are uh, better vaccinated in the United States, that people are getting the two shots and then the booster and wearing the masks and taking a bit more precautions, but they're still going out, they're having dinner, they're seeing relatives, they're traveling, and we're coming to a point that I see as being, this is the new normal. And people are not going to totally compromise their life, but not put themselves at risk. But what's also to me interesting and dangerous and disturbing is I'm hearing less and less tolerance amongst those people who are vaccinated and boosted for those people who are not vaccinated. Because what they see is that these other individuals, if they want to risk their life, that's one thing but they see them as being a major force for why society is having to close down and they're becoming moderately resentful that what other people are doing is so negatively impacting their life, their family's life, their family get-togethers. You know, I read an article in, I believe it was in the Post yesterday that said, um, that um, there are a lot of health uh, experts who believe that President Biden, the White House, are not being stringent enough given just how virulent this this strain is. Do you believe that there is gonna come a point, depending on how the numbers go this, this winter, that there will have to be vaccine mandates and mask mandates or, or, or schools closing down? What's your sense, Dr. Pearl? I think we're long past needing vaccine mandates. Uh, the president talked about it, but as you know, it's uh, tied up in the courts. You have some appeals courts that have ruled it uh, illegal. They've said OSHA is overstepping its bounds by imposing it. The federal government's opposing it. As strange as it sounds, when you're looking at, I think it's uh, healthcare workers, the rules are completely opposite in 24 states against the other 26 states. No, I think vaccine mandates should be necessary uh, as conditions to move into public spaces. I think it's a, um, people have the right not to be vaccinated, but they don't necessarily, from my perspective, have the right to then come into a space and risk the health of other individuals. Uh, the data does not show any major issues from the vaccine. In fact, getting the disease creates all of the complications we've seen from the vaccines and more and more frequently and more severe. So I think that that's necessary. Masks are a question of slowing down transmission. See, vaccines are what protect you. Masks are a temporizing measure. So when you have a lot of disease, masks help 
because the spread is slower, but what they really help is to avoid overwhelming the healthcare facilities, which as you know, in quite a number of places right now, there are no ICU beds left and the hospital beds are starting to become in trouble. The place that I think that the president needed to do more, he mentioned it a little bit, but I would say he needed to do a lot more earlier is around testing. And I think particularly with Omicron, testing is gonna be the key. In some ways, a very good aspect to it is that when you get sick with Omicron, assuming you're vaccinated and boosted, your viral load is much lower. And that's why particularly these rapid at home tests can be negative for several days before they turn positive. It's not that the test is broken. It's that the amount of virus needed in that particular test to test positive has to reach a higher level than if you have what's called the PCR, the, the testing that's required in the laboratory. Well, that's a lot of tests and most of the pharmacies around where I am right now don't have any left on the shelves. I think we should have mobilized all the power of the federal government and we should be creating uh, billions of testing kits, make them easily available, because I think that would allow people to know how to protect those around them, those that they love, whether it's gonna be at a holiday party, whether it's gonna be uh, with some friends out of the town, whether it's just gonna be going to the movies, I think frequent testing will become the new normal inside the Omicron variant. Yeah, and I think we're all confronting this, uh, you know, testing shortage. You know, my my son, as I mentioned, had uh, come across two of his friends who had been uh, to the party and been exposed. So, the this past week, my son has been running around looking for vaccine. I mean, uh, test uh, test kits so that he can test himself. And I was calling around. It took a bunch of calls to actually find. Uh, available test kits and and this the serial testing as you call it requires you to be able to take a repeated number of tests which he's been doing his third one so far all negative but if that if the test kits are made more available and it, it, i think it will make a huge difference so i don't know if the half a billion test kits that they're going to make available the white house is going to be sufficient what's interesting also is what happened in uh Great Britain today, which is that they shortened the time period that you need to quarantine and isolate in the context of Omicron. It had been 10 days in Delta, and they've shortened it down to five days. Some of that is just the reality that in a place like a hospital or a school, if it's 10 days, you're not going to have any staff there because the virus is so contagious. But some of it also, I believe, is a recognition, again, two vaccines and a booster, your chances of becoming very sick or much lower, and your chances of having the kind of high viral load that then makes you very contagious to others drops, drops relatively quickly. So again, this is a point of change that's going to be happening, and I predict it's gonna happen very early in the year, uh, January, February, we're gonna be dealing with this. The good news again, out of South Africa, is that the virus spikes very high because of its transmissibility, and then it seems to be receding relatively uh, you know, quickly. And I think that that's hopefully what we're gonna see. I don't mean it's gonna be gone in a week or two, but certainly it's gonna be gone more rapidly than Delta was, able, was disappearing. Uh, maybe uh, a month or so, we might start to see this go down and just have it become the word that is used in medicine is endemic, which means that it's always around us. 
It's going to flare up in some geographies, and we're going to have to take actions, but the broad national crisis isn't going to happen. The good news is the, amount, the number of people who will become very sick and those who will die should start to diminish. The bad news is, in that circumstance, it never goes away. And it never goes away because the virus stays as long as there's a population of people that it can infect. And if this virus is capable of infecting not just the unvaccinated, but also those who are vaccinated, even at a much lower frequency, it will percolate around until it finds a very at-risk population. And then like, a, like the ambers in a forest fire, it will flare up when the winds blow and then it will die down again and move to someplace else. You know that I feel for parents of very young children who are too young to be vaccinated. And Jeremy, you are the parent of a young son. I mean, uh, when you when you have kids that are not yet a vaccination age, it, it seems to really sort of create this divide, right? We are out there. We're going to restaurants. We're we're boosted. We're vaccinated. We we our our concern level is down. But Jeremy, for someone like yourself uh, with a young child, what is your situation in terms of being able to be have a normal life right now? Chitra, I think the most difficult thing for me was earlier on this year when uh, he started kindergarten and they they had the mask mandate at school and, you know, having him follow that, you know, picking him up, um, I would say, you know, one out of every five days I picked him up from school, um, he would come out with like the, the mask around his chin. Um, you know, he did the best he could. And, you know, you'd see other kids out in the playground, half of them had him nowhere in sight half of them had them on and you know bless their hearts they're doing the best they can but it, it just this kind of realization hit me that there's only so much i can do and still get him the social interaction and the education that he needs um when i look at the risk for how deadly and dangerous the virus is for young children um, I think the dangers in my opinion from a parent as someone who's assessing the risk the dangers of keeping him isolated, keeping him at home. And those things don't even compare to the dangers of him falling behind in school, falling behind in social development, um, and even not getting the kind of experiences that a kid needs uh, to really fully develop and have you know, an enjoyable childhood. Yeah, so so Dr. Pro, where are we with the the youngest uh, uh, kids and, and getting them protected? How long will it be uh, before we can get the whole population uh, safely vaccinated? There are several issues inside this question so that we don't confuse listeners. First, the youngest kids have always been relatively safe when it comes to COVID. The number of uh, cases of children dying who are young, very, very, very small. Uh, even the number of children who have uh, complications from it is relatively small. Now, when you're talking about your own child, of course, any risk seems impossible, uh, but we take risks all the time. When they climb on uh, bars at school, we drive uh, on vacation. So there are risks that happen. We just don't like them as parents. And so the reality is that the low risk should be reassuring, even if parents would like it to be zero. We will be having vaccines probably to as young as six months. And remember, uh, children carry some of the antibodies from the mother uh, with them following birth. 
Uh, it, it will happen. Uh, it will be a lower dose. It gets very tricky when you're talking about little babies to figure out exactly the right amount of vaccine to administer. Uh, it'll have to be tested. It's going to be coming. Uh, we just lowered the boosting for six to 16 and 17 year olds. It will come down to the five to 11s. So we're gonna see this happen progressively. Uh, I think it's more of a parental concern than a major uh, health risk. And I think if there were a lot of children, by the way, as happens with other viruses, but in this particular virus, if there were a lot of children getting very sick, I actually think we'd probably have authorization already. I think it's balancing, and this is what the FDA and the CDC have to do, two sets of risks, which is if you take in a population that has a very small chance of having a major problem and you introduce an unknown, you wanna study it longer and make sure it's better so that the public understands that once it comes along, it's going to be safe for their child. We're gonna see it sometime in 2022. I don't think we're gonna see it very, very early. I think we're more likely to see the boosting for the kids five to 11, a little bit before we see the vaccine for six months to five years. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a really important point there of sort of the fear of sort of the unknown, right? The fear that they might come down with it rather than the actual risk. But I think it's a mental health issue, I think, for a lot of parents, right, to deal with that and to have to really ratchet back their own engagement with society just in the interest of uh, being uh, extremely cautious. But overall as well, right, the mental health uh, of people in, having to deal with this for another year now with another strain is really, I think, pretty, uh, uh, you know, some, something that's weighing everybody down. Would you agree, Dr. Pearl? I wrote a piece for Forbes, published it about two weeks ago, about why the 30 years is really going to mess with our minds. And I think that's, a, that's the point you're making, and I think it's happening right now. You know, there are two kinds of pain. You have the severe acute pain. You know, if you're having a heart attack, it's, we describe it as a crushing chest pain because it's so bad. If you have a bleed inside your brain area, it's, we talk about the worst headache you've ever had in your life. So that's the major one and it's a sign of an emergent problem. But we also see people who have chronic pain. I often think about it as hiking with a little bit of a irritation in your boot that goes on to a blister in your boot, that goes on to a bigger problem. And I think at the third year, that's where we are. You know, I realize that there are kids who are gonna go into kindergarten who half their life have only seen masked people and that's the half they remember. So they may not have never seen society without that. There are kids who are 12 and 13 who are gonna, will have missed all of middle school, a very important social time. I'm very concerned about the cutback that's in place, but that to me is more than just saying, okay, let's get rid of it. You can't get rid of it without the other protections. And that's why I am such a proponent of making sure that we have school mandates around vaccines and boosters. And if parents want to homeschool, we've always let parents homeschool, but to inflict the, the educational damage, that's not going to go away when the virus goes away. There's a lot of data. If you miss a couple of years of core learning, it affects you for your, the rest of your life, your job satisfaction, the income you're able to earn, the impact it has on your family. Um, 
the impact upon isolation on older people and on grandparents. We have so much danger and risk, I think, from the mental health consequences. And by the way, we're seeing it. There was a study in the New York Times or, or an article in the New York Times about 1,300 therapists who were just talking about how their practices have exploded with people coming in with this anxiety, with these frustrations, with the day-to-day -day fatigue. Uh, this virus is inflicting, I think, as much pain in the third year psychologically, mentally, our well-being, as it is in terms of the danger to our lives, assuming that we're vaccinated and boosted. Yeah, and, and the point you make about young children never having seen, you know, people without masks on. I, I, and Jeremy, you know, you, you, your son is in that category, probably. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting to think that his entire education so far, uh, he's had to wear a mask. And, and one of the kind of crazier uh, realizations of it, too, is, you know, a lot of the parents are just kind of following the masking guidelines for the sake of, you know, the school requires it, but whatever, but then they still go about whatever, not having their kid wear the mask or anything anywhere else they go. Um, so there's no real, outside of wearing the mask, there's no real lessened risk because of the people he's exposed to on a daily basis. Yeah, and, and the healthcare system as a whole as well, I think it has, you know, looking at it over the year, the past two years and going into year three now, it would seem that our entire healthcare system has done a complete reevaluation of how we deal with these kinds of emergent diseases and then how it impacts all of the other preventive health and all of that stuff that has never really, you know, that's not getting its fair consideration. Uh, what do you guys make of sort of the long-term impact, this is short and long-term impact on the healthcare system both looking back and then looking ahead to next year and beyond. As with so much of this virus, there's always two sides. I can't think of any impact this virus has had that has not created that type of division. So on the negative side, it's destroying clinicians. It's burning them out. I read that 25% of nurses are considering leaving the profession. We already have a national shortage. Uh, we know that uh, physicians, particularly those who've been in emergency rooms and critical care units, uh, they've just been hammered and they're not sure how much more they can take. And we're, gonna, we're seeing uh, burnout amongst those specialties growing and we're likely to see increasing psychological difficulties for the caregivers. So the impact on the healthcare system has been huge. But I think there's another side, which is the possibility that we will use the experiences to finally evolve the healthcare system. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that telemedicine has the potential to be a game changer. So let's look a little bit at what happened. You had the virus come along. Prior to that, physicians only offered telemedicine to one or 2% of patients. And now suddenly it soars to 60%. But the telemedicine we're talking about in that context was simply using it, using video 
to replace an in-person experience with a virtual one. It was the same doctor-patient relationship. It just happened virtually rather than in person. And that doesn't really change medicine that much. It still takes a lot of time for the doctor to provide that care. The cost is relatively similar. It's more convenient. There are ways that it's better. But to me, that's just the first step on what can be a journey. And what I mean by that is the possibility of recognizing that we can use telemedicine, the positive experience that both doctors and patients had to now create more advanced ways of providing care. What's an example? Well, let's assume that Jeremy's five-year-old or six-year-old son has 102 fever, 103 fever tonight. Jeremy's not sure what to do. Should he go to the emergency room or and spend two hours likely waiting and missing sleep and disrupting his child's experience? Or should he wait to the morning? He calls his pediatrician's office and what, it's, what does he hear? A recording that says, if this is an emergency, go to the local ER. He can't get the expertise he needs, but we could provide that for him using video. And a clinician who can see his son if he sees a child is lying there limp, he's worried about meningitis, you say, race him in right now. If the kid's riding his bike around the living room, he's going to say, wait for the morning and let's, let's see how he's doing at that particular time. That would be a tremendous advance, not just for better patient care, but also for the healthcare system overall. Patients with chronic disease, you know, we manage them on a calendar. I'll see you every three to four months. Some patients are well controlled, we need to see once a year. Some we need to see every month. You can't come into the doctor every month, but you could do a virtual visit and we could change your medication. So the opportunities to get rid of distance and time to provide more advanced care and sophisticated care. And I'll add one more piece, which is that in this type of telemedicine system, we actually finally can get away from fee-for-service that rewards simply doing more, whether it adds value or not, and move to some type of prepayment, a capitated payment, the obligation to take care of a set of patients across an entire year and be responsible for their quality and for the satisfaction they have in the care. And I think that would be not only far better for patients, but also for the caregivers. And I think potentially, coming out of this pandemic, we will have become so comfortable with virtual technology that it will open the door to the type of innovation and transformation that'll be needed. Yeah, Jeremy, what do you think might be some of the biggest uh, impacts in terms of healthcare for good or for bad? I think, you know, to, to second what Robbie said, I think the biggest you know thing for good has to be telehealth. It's something I never really used before the pandemic. Uh, I used it once early on and was just kind of blown away by how easy it was. I think uh, I think I had pink eye or my kid had pink eye or something like that. And just how easy it was, how quick it was, the fact that I could set my phone, you know, by my desk while I'm waiting for it to, you know, the doctor to pop in the meeting room, don't have to change any, you know, don't have to drive anywhere, don't have to sit in a waiting room full of other potentially sick people. You know, I think telehealth is something that now that it's much more adopted and, and people are much more used to it. I think that's a complete game changer. Um, and as far as like what has really changed for the worse, 
I think it's got to be the mental health crisis that we're facing. I think, you know, especially knowing that Omicron is here and, you know, the pandemic is now, like Robbie said, going to be endemic. You know, I think that's really affected the mental health of a lot of people. I mean, the the fear, the uncertainty of not just, you know, what's going to happen to my family members, but also, you know, what's going to happen economically is my is my little restaurant that I own going to go under if they're, you know, we're already struggling and then there's, you know, there's another round of lockdowns or restrictions or something like that. Or even just knowing that, you know, the nation has become so divided ideologically and politically. And I think the pandemic, which has really kind of made that much worse which is ridiculous because a pandemic is something like, you know, like a 9-11 type event that should really bring us together versus divide us. But I think we're in such a divided state right now that a lot of that mental health crisis comes from people who are like, oh my gosh, I I don't even, you know, I can't even talk to my sister anymore because she's not vaccinated or I can't even talk to my best friend anymore because, you know, they think I'm terrible for, for leaving the house without a mask on sometimes. And I think there is just that added element of division that goes along with it, that uncertainty that goes along with it, that you know, increased opioid use, increased uh, alcoholism, increased child abuse. You know, I think that is something that as we kind of get the pandemic more under control, I really want to see the nation focus more on how to kind of get the, the mental health crisis and, and drug abuse crisis that we're facing under control. Yeah, you know, you make some really important points, especially around the holiday season, where if if you have members of the family that want to visit but are not vaccinated, that immediately sets up a whole slew of questions and and divisions among family members. Should should we invite them? Should they come? It, it is really interesting, and as you pointed out, even in in the politics of this, right? This this virus is completely intertwined with our political. Uh, rhetoric, our political narrative, and and the future of of politics. President Biden is struggling like the Dickens in the ratings, and uh, Democrats are super worried both about the midterm elections and 2024. Um, you know, just to interject a little bit of this key element of this in our country, the politics of COVID-19. How will Omicron and its evolution affect Democrats' chances both in the midterms and in 2024 and and Republicans' chances as well? Jeremy? You know, I think uh, it's it's fascinating to, to watch this because I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I think a lot of people were very frustrated with how Donald Trump handled it, and rightfully so. I think Operation Warp Speed was awesome, but I think there were a lot of other ways and a lot of, you know, ridiculous rhetoric that he used. Um, that really kind of furthered to the, the the already existing divide. And I think then you see kind of more of the left-leaning mainstream media outlets and, and left-leaning politicians, Democrats and stuff, who've kind of taken this as one of those issues they use, uh, same thing with Republicans. You know, Republicans say, we're the ones that are good for the economy. We're not going to do lockdowns. We're the ones for personal freedom. We're the ones that are going to make it so your small restaurant doesn't go out of business. And And, you know, you see Democrats really focusing around we're the ones that are going to keep you safe. We're the ones that's going to do what need to be done to really kind of get us through the pandemic. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was the concern about the virus and there was the fear. And I think that really played into, you know, Joe Biden winning and, uh, you know, how well the Democrats did in the last election. I think now seeing inflation, seeing the, you know, the number of small businesses or even bigger businesses that can't find work, can't find labor, seeing the number of businesses going under, like the, there's a restaurant that I ate at for lunch sometimes just down the street from my office that just went under and they've been there for quite a while. I mean, you see more and more of these small businesses closing or can't make it. And I think if there is a, another round of economic 
restrictions. And I think, you know, if gas prices continue to increase, and I think if inflation continues to increase, which I don't really see that ending anytime soon, you know, I think we're looking at a potential red wave uh, in the midterms, just because of how frustrated people are with gas prices, inflation. I think, you know, people have become so much more concerned about the economy, the value of their, you know, the power of the dollar and how it's affecting them personally, than they are about the pandemic at this point. Yeah, what do you think, Dr. Pearl? I think it would turn around to you. You're a, a very experienced uh, reporter, commentator. You've lived in the political world. And I would ask you to think about some presidents to the Republican side. You could look at uh, uh, both Bush, whose ratings were low, and Reagan, whose ratings were high. You could look at the Democratic side with Carter's ratings being very low and uh, Obama and Clinton being higher, but maybe not quite as high as Kennedy's had been. How do you see the presidency and, of course, the midterm elections in that context? Do you think they correlate with the jobs that these leaders did in the world at the time? Or do you think they um, impacted the perception of the electorate uh, to a far greater and maybe different way than the, uh, um, than the objective data would show? Well, I think perception often is reality, right? And I think that where, you know, there are many who say that President Biden has probably done a pretty decent job with the, with his performance so far, both with COVID-19 and with uh, infrastructure bill and all of these major things. But when people are walking around with a weight over their shoulders, with a virus that cannot be seen, but is affecting their every decision, uh, which has caused a sea change, a massive shift in the employment profile of this country, in the decisions that individuals are making as to how they should be employed, what they should be doing, uh, in, in their ability to make a living and take care of their families, in their ability to go to the hospitals and get care, I think that where Omicron will be or whatever the next strain will be in the next year, two, two and a half years, is probably going to have a profound impact, maybe even if not directly, then at least in the commercials that politicians are going to be airing on both sides, claiming success, claiming failure. Uh, and uh, I think it's probably going to have a very both tangible and intangible impact. What do you think? Do you agree? I, I think that it will, because my, my observation is that the perception of people about the president is um, only partially correlated with exactly what the president does objectively, because we see it through our own lens. And whether ongoing frustrations of societal cutbacks, uh, whether inflation and gas prices and supply chain issues are the are the result of what the president did or not the result, people will see that as being the case. It goes along with the job. And I think we also know that in the uh, midterm elections, you often see a shift in parties. So that the same, I don't think this is any different. That's, that's why I asked the question before, any different than it's been for the past 30 or 40 years and probably long before that as well. I just don't know very as much about history as you and Jeremy do. Uh, but I think that there is a sense of perception that's very local. You know, we say in medicine that it's all local. What's it like in my community? What's it like in my family? And it's true, but that's my same sense of economics. That's my same sense of society. 
my biggest concern, and I think I'll echo what Jeremy said earlier, is the divisiveness, which is that I believe that we can't address big problems without consensus. Uh, again, I wrote a piece in Forbes where I said I'd love to have leaders come around and do something that uh, negotiators will talk about, which is to say, let's not talk about what we disagree about. Let's talk about what we agree about. What would someone, and I mean at the far ends of, uh, of the two sides say, but if we look a little bit to each side, where maybe the majority of people are, what can they agree on when it comes to this virus? Will people agree that this virus saves lives? Now, if we don't agree about that, then there's nothing we can agree upon. But if let's look at the data. Why don't we agree about it? We may not agree about some things where the data is not as clear. Invectin's a really great example about it. But the vaccine, we should be able to agree. How many people have been harmed by the vaccine versus how many people have been harmed by the virus? We should be able to agree upon that. What is the blood immunity following two shots versus a booster shot? This is what science does. And so we should be able to have some agreements about that. And when we can agree on that, can we come up with common policy? And I think what you're describing is the gap between our inability, our desire, or at least that's the way we act, to be extreme on one end or another today. And that middle is a very empty and lonely place. Yeah, and I think that people are also unable to uh, assess real risk versus perceived risk. The ability to assess risk is one of the hardest things and what most people, probably including myself, fail at. And I think that probably plays into it. And you also talked about a very rational situation in which people can say, well, is the virus more dangerous than the vaccine? But I think what we're not accounting for there is the um, anti-science culture that's very much permeating American society and, and, and globally as well, even in countries like France, you know? And so I think that that kind of plays into a lot of the struggles that any politician is going to have in being able to combat something as as virulent as, uh, as COVID-19. So... I'll be looking ahead, what are your predictions for 2022? Jeremy, would you like to go first? Actually, Chitra, can I go back on to kind of to piggyback off of what Robbie said? Yeah. You know, he had talked about some of the great presidents of the last number or last however many years. And I think one of the big problems we're facing, and I think one of the reasons maybe why we're so divided right now is just that I look on either side of the aisle. Right. And I'm, I'm taking this from a, you know, take my own political viewpoints out of this and I'm backing up, you know, 500 foot view of I look around the political landscape and I think, you know, who do I see that I can really be confident in to kind of get us out of this crisis, the supply chain crisis, inflation crisis, all that stuff. And I, I, I don't really see anybody that really comes to mind. And when we look back historically, you know, United States has a history of like having had a lot of great as well as a lot of really terrible presidents. There's not really anybody in the political landscape right now that I look at and be like, okay, that's going to be the next FDR. That's going to be the next Lincoln. That's going to be the next, uh, you know, Jefferson. And I think one of the things that, and Robbie and I actually talked about this on one of our podcasts, and I think what we're missing is what made Lincoln so special and so unique and hands down, in my opinion, the best president that we've ever had was his ability to surround himself with people that couldn't stand him and openly disagreed with him. 
and to take all of their opinions into account. And I think that's something that's sorely missing from today's political landscape, because if you surround yourself with people that agree with you all the time, or yes men, or people that have their own kind of agenda that they're gonna push you on, but you don't surround yourself with kind of contradicting opinions, but also a leader that's gonna be like, okay, I hear what you, 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 and you have to say, and I take all those opinions, all those, you know, all those kind of ideas and I put them together, but I'm going to be the one that makes that final decision and really kind of push our nation in the right direction while still gathering facts and opinions from every source possible. I think that's something that we're just sorely lacking in today's political climate. And I think a big thing that we could do, or I mean, a big issue that we have is there's just not really that person in today's landscape. We look at the, the, the front runners for both the right and the left, you know, maybe next time it'll be Harris, Buttigieg, and who knows, and on the right, probably Trump. But like, I just don't see any of them being that right person for that. And and that's that's very depressing. But uh, I I I, I, Sorry. Really, <laughs> I I I believe that what you're saying is exactly true. You know, the governance versus demagoguery. You know, it's uh it's it. There's a fine line there, or maybe maybe more than a fine line. But looking ahead to 2022, what do you see in terms of your predictions, trends, forecasts for healthcare, for COVID-19, and for politics? You know, I would say the first thing that comes to mind is I think, you know, like I said, I think if there is another round of, unless there's some other black swan moment, but if there is another round of economic restrictions or something like that, I really see the midterms being a, a red wave, potentially the likes of which hasn't been seen in a while. I think, you know, the question is, are we going to get to the point where with the pandemic, that we either kind of overcome it and get to the point where we get as much to normal life as possible, or we're going to get to that point where we're just like, you know, where the majority of the populace is just kind of over it and doesn't care anymore and just wants that normal life so bad that they're not maybe handling the pandemic in the best way. And I think that's that big wild card is, you know, what happens with that. And I think to Robbie's point, earlier and maybe it wasn't on this episode maybe it was on one of our podcasts we do together but i think you know if this starts if there's a strain that comes along that starts hitting young children a lot harder i think that's totally going to change everything or if omicron gets so bad that to robbie's point earlier i knew a few people that got covid19 earlier on in the pandemic but in the last few weeks i've known a ton more people than the entire pandemic combined that have gotten it all vaccinated and i think if there's something like that that comes along uh, you know, kind of to where it affects more and more people in their daily life, I think that also might kind of shift that thought process for people as well. Yeah, I, I, I think it could be another bleak year in our uh, in our history, uh, one that we look back on and say, wow, you know, that, that was a tough one. Dr. Pearl, what do you think? Since it's the end of the year, start of the year program, uh, let me leap out there and make some predictions. If I get half of them right, that's probably a pretty good batting average. <laughs> uh, the first thing I'll say is that we're going to see a roller coaster ride when it comes to this virus this year. Uh, we're going to see the cases spiking, then we'll see them sort of going away, then we'll see them spike again. I'm hoping we're not going to see another variant because if the remember this, this virus is always mutating because it's always replicating, and uh, the virus is able to become dominant when it has increased transmissibility. So it's just a evolutionary competitive advantage, uh, but I'm hoping we're not gonna see one that's much more severe. We're just gonna see one that's gonna be here for a long time. Uh, but again, with peaks, uh, spikes and with troughs. 
Number two, I think that that um, boosters will become the new definition of fully vaccinated. Um, and I su wouldn't surprise me if by the end of the year we see another booster. And it won't surprise me either if that booster is not the same booster we've been taking for the past uh, year or a little over a year, but it actually is one that is more specific to Omicron, to Delta, to whatever the next variant is going to be. I'm going to predict that the Supreme Court will hear at some point this year the vaccine mandate legislation issues. And it actually, despite the conservative leaning of the court in some other areas, they will come down supporting those vaccine mandates. Uh, people will not be happy about that in some parts of the country. But at some point, I do believe that, again, vaccination will become the uh, expected norm. I think the one piece that I can't be sure with the, with the virus, at some point it will become endemic. I just don't know whether it's going to be in 2022 or 2023. Economically, in terms of the healthcare world, you, I know you saw the fact that the data from 2020 came out. Healthcare costs went up almost 10%. It now consumes 19.7% of the world's largest GDP. If you want to put it into context, we spend more on healthcare in the United States. We spend two and a half times more than Russia spends on everything, its entire GDP, what we spend on healthcare in the United States. We spend more on healthcare than uh, every country except China, Japan, uh, and um, Germany spend on their total goods and services. I think what we're going to see is these costs are going to continue to rise. Uh, we're going to see supply chain issues where the cost of supplies and drugs are going to go up. We're going to see uh, personnel issues, particularly around nursing. I think we're going to see healthcare inflation going up. And it won't surprise me if the debate intensifies in 2022 about whether something more aggressive is needed, something more trans uh, transformational, something more evolutionary, maybe revolutionary. I don't think it's going to happen in 2022. You know, this is what is called a uh, seminal event. It's a strategic inflection point. And what we see, if we look back at history, at these moments in time when radical change starts to happen, it doesn't begin in a given moment or a given year. It happens over about a five to 10 year period, but it's like a rock rolling down a hill. It never goes back to the top and it continually gains momentum. I think this will be the start of that process, but it's not gonna end in 2022 more likely to end in 2025, six or seven. Jeremy, you get the last word on vaccine mandates if the Supreme Court rules in favor of them. My, oh, that's tough. You know, I don't know on this one. And I think it's it's really, you know, I think from a constitutional standpoint, you, sh you could argue that are they legal? Yes, but they have to be gone about with the right process and they have to be, you know, go through the right, the proper channels to, come into place. And I don't, I think that's the big argument is that they potentially did or that they did not go through the proper channels to be a mandate. Um, and that it sets a dangerous precedent going forward that it's, you know, it's less about the vaccine mandate itself and more about what the, the president has the authority to do and, and what channels they have to use that authority. Well, we'll be talking a lot more about that next year as all of these issues percolate. Jeremy, Dr. Pearl, uh, as we end the end this conversation with predictions and forecasts, if there was one wish you had uh, in healthcare or anything related uh, that you would like to see happen this coming year, what would that be? Jeremy, I'll start with you. 
Yeah. And I, this is something Robbie and I kind of talked about the other day, but when my grandma was at the end of her life about a decade ago, she sat there and watched cable news every day and kind of was convinced that the world was the worst state it's ever been in. And how could it possibly get any worse than it is now? And, you know, my dad talks to me quite a bit about that because, you know, he always reminded her, you lived through the great depression. You know, you lived through World War II. Those times were much worse than the times we're in now. And I kind of have that same feeling you know, about now, anytime I get down in the dumps and I talk to my dad about it, about kind of the, the current state of the country and the economy and, and COVID and everything, he reminds me of those conversations with my grandma. But I think, you know, that dark cloud that I kind of feel, I think everybody feels to an extent. And I think one thing, if I could make any sort of wish for the coming year, is that I know a lot of people have had it much worse than me from a mental health, parenting, you know, maybe alcoholism or opioid use or whatever kind of perspective. And I think my big wish for the coming year is if the nation could do much more and be a lot more proactive about the mental health crisis that that we're facing due to the pandemic. Yeah, what about you, Dr. Pearl? I would like to see our nation come together, recognize that we face a deadly virus that can tear us apart economically, mental health-wise, physically. We face challenges in a global world with uh, difficulties around inflation, businesses suffering, as Jeremy said, individuals with mental health issues. We have all these forces around us, and yet we continue to prefer to battle each other rather than to come together over common solutions. I think the problems for this world will grow over time. The opportunities will increase as well. And the difference between being victims and being successful is going to be our ability to collaborate and to cooperate. I'd encourage any listeners who want any more information on COVID to go to my website, robertperlmd.com, where they can access articles to listen to our podcast around the topic. And I want to thank you, Cheech, for hosting these two amazing podcasts, educating people and bringing them together so that as a nation, we can make healthcare in the United States once again the best in the world. Well, thank you very much for those kind words. And I would say my wish, uh, well, my, my first wish would be that we could roll back time and none of this would have happened. But since that's not going to, going to uh, manifest itself, I would say my wish would be that everyone can make science-based, rational risk assessments and science-based decisions that will keep them and their families and the society around them and in which they live uh, safe. So um, I think we, uh, hopefully some of these wishes will come true. Uh, Jeremy Kaur, Dr. Robert Pearl, thank you so much for joining me on Techtopia and for this absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you, Chitra, and Happy New Year to listeners. May you have uh, 12 months of peace and health. We deserve it. Thank you so much, Chitra. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Yes, and a very, very Happy New Year to you both. Uh, Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur are co-hosts of two great podcasts, Fixing Healthcare and Coronavirus, The Truth. Jeremy is the CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, and as many of you know, the amazing producer who produces both my podcasts, Techtopia and When It Mattered. And Dr. Pearl is the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente Medical Group. He is currently practicing and teaching at the Stanford University School of Medicine. His new book is called Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And proceeds from all of Dr. Pearl's books 
go to Doctors Without Borders. In closing, I'd like to thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in every week, both to this podcast, Techtopia, and to my leadership podcast, When It Mattered. I know there are a plethora of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful for your time and support. If you have a moment, please like, rate, and add a review, both of Techtopia and When It Mattered, on your favorite podcast platform, and do give them five stars. I'm looking forward to seeing you in the new year. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.